Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. So, Mr. Moini, some people might recognize that last name. Moini Jr. <laughs> Moini Jr. The better Moini, that's right. The better Moini. <laughs> How's your day been? Yeah, it's been really good, actually. It was just, uh, I think I may take the crown as your guys' number one fan. When I was- <laughs> no, that's my mum, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was just driving over here. I was listening to the last episode you guys did about melasma. It was actually oh, very yeah. exciting. I've been With Davin Lim? Yeah, with Davin Lim. And it's, Nick uh, Duvenin from Advanced Cosmeceuticals. Oh, you know them very well. Yeah. Very yeah. well. I've been, I, I've been following you guys' podcast since day one. I listen to all of them. I'll definitely be listening to my favorite episode, which I hope will be this one. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's address the elephant in the room, which is that you are the son of Bob Ack. I'd just like to go on the record yeah, and say no. there is no evidence for that yeah. officially, but uh, I'll accept it. I'll Genetic accept it. speak, there is some <laughs> resemblance. Yeah. We, um, both, we both have a lot of filler in our face. That's yeah. Right. <laughs> well, so just for people that don't know who um, Bob Ack is, he is one of the founding partners of Laser Clinics Australia that sold a few years ago um, to a private equity firm. So it was a, I guess, a, a world record breaking um, deal that was done and it was the largest, well, still is the largest chain of clinics in the cosmetic space in the world. So it's been an interesting journey. I mean, I've known you since probably you're about 10 years old. That's right. Yeah. yeah. No, so we go way back. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been interesting watching you sort of grow up and watching the business that your dad created become this huge success story. What was it like for you growing up um, in that household? And I, I guess there's some stories that you probably can't, that you can't share <laughs> for obvious reason. Uh, for all of you as we're just laughing at each other right yeah. now. Yeah. Um, you know, growing inside the household was actually very great. And I was, I was always exposed to um, the business, the people working in the business, uh, the ideas in, in their infancy. I got to watch them grow up and um, see them be implemented. And now that I'm uh, mature enough and I understand what, well, uh, how how integral the journey was for him as the first mover within the industry and looking back at it it was just a it's absolutely fantastic to actually have been inside that environment because i've seen all the failures of both my dad and people around him who've asked him for advice and the franchisees within the clinic uh nurses doctors um dermal therapists so everyone so for me it's actually been fantastic just because i've got an exposure to failures and successes and I couldn't. I couldn't really be happier because it's just allowed me to learn so much in such a short period of time. I'm curious. Did you want to go into this field, or <laughs> were you pushed away by the craziness uh, of it? <laughs> that's a very good question. Um, look, initially, I, I didn't really have an interest in the aesthetics industry. You know, I was always quite interested in in corporate finance. Um, was very interested in things like sports and cars, as young as young boys are. Um, and aesthetics never really came to my mind. And I think only after realizing how instrumental, you know, my dad was to the industry and seeing, all right, and he's actually been able to sell out for this fantastic amount where, where I could actually look back and say, well, it's it's really fantastic what he's done. And, um, you know, aside from, you know, the respect he'd garnered from, you know, franchisees, nurses, doctors, aestheticians alike, um, it's 
it was it was never something that I really considered. You know, I'd been working in um, in finance down in Melbourne. I'd done a little bit in Sydney as well. I'd uh, worked inside hospitality, owning my own chain of uh, chocolate cafes for a while. And um, it had only been in the last three years where aesthetics has really come, you know, into my life and I've just become obsessed with it. I've become obsessed, yeah, yeah from about everything. So you did really well at school. You could have gone to university and probably done anything you wanted, medicine, law, whatever. You chose not to go to university <laughs> and you went instead, um, decided to go and work in, in finance and understand how money works and we'll get to your ventures in private equity. But what was the decision or where did the decision come from to skip uni and go and do something different? Well, at the time, the, the richest person I knew was my dad. And, yep. um, <laughs> Probably still is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, well, yeah, he was the richest person I knew. And um, my, my measure of success, rightfully or wrongfully, um, back when I was 18, was about, was about money and yep. financial position. Um, and what he had told me was, if you do the same thing that everybody else does, you can only be as good as anybody else. And that advice still sits with me today where I look around and I say, well, if I'm doing the same thing as everybody else, I'm going to turn out the same way. And I've applied that mantra to everything inside my life to, you know, how, you know, how I treat other people to, um, you know, the business ventures I do and the way I think about, you know, cosmetics. Um, so it, it was very much so a, a risky decision at the time, but Looking back at it, I think it's one of the best decisions I've been able to make because I've been able to bring in value um, from a completely different perspective that I don't think um, many other students are able to. So I think it's it's really been it's been different, and it hasn't been without its struggles, and it's required a lot of hustling. But um, I I definitely think the skill set I bring by having not gone to university um, at this stage has been quite unique. Mm -hmm. What um, excites you about the aesthetic industry? Because you know, particularly in Australia, maybe people listening from abroad, maybe not understanding, but there are a lot of big, big chain clinics. It feels sometimes very saturated. So where do you see the growth and the, the opportunities? Well, funnily enough, the aesthetics, the aesthetics industry has been different to many other industries. You know, although it's been a, around for a long time, you know, mo- modern aesthetics, how we know it these days has really only been around since the depression um, or pr- just the early pre-depression era. Um, but it's still been a relatively inefficient market. There's developments happening all the time in skincare. Uh, Jake, you were just mentioning before that there's now plant-based fillers that are being developed in the background. There's so much research going on and people are constantly investing in themselves and saying, well, what can I do to look younger? What can I do to look better? Um, And these treatments have now become so commercialized, at least within Australia and I imagine uh, the United States and the UK as well and some other markets like maybe South Korea, that it's just such an exciting place to be. And you just don't get that in many other industries. The development, you know, it's just hard. It's hard to keep up with it. There's uh, so many different things happening. And, you know, I think there was an episode you guys had L'Oreal on. Mm -hmm. Um, The R&D that's happening there is just, it's fantastic. It just doesn't exist in any other industry as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Yeah, I agree. It's exciting. You mentioned that uh, the industry is quite underdeveloped or not really mature in a lot of ways, even though it's been around for a long time, inefficient. Why do you think that is? Um, it, it's not It's not a single answer. Um, in essence, um, Jake and David, uh, you both mentioned that there's a lot of chain clinics in, mm. in Australia, but you know the market is so massive around the world. There's still so much fragmentation between, you know, individual um, injector-led practices, um, the chain clinics themselves, 
um, small boutiques just run by um, individual owners or aestheticians. Um, the, the skincare industry doesn't really have a leader, so to speak. You know, there are big brands, but there's no go-to. There's different concerns that most people just aren't able to address that it just has ended up in such a fragmented way where there hasn't been one clear leader. Now, if you look at the mar- the shoe market, you know, the first names that come to your mind are probably Nike, Adidas, maybe Puma. If you look at the, the beverage market, Coca-Cola is the first one that comes to my mind, maybe Pepsi. Now, when I say skincare or when I say laser hair removal or I say, you know, um, I say I was going to say the name of a drug. Um, injectables. <laughs> yeah. or, or I say, or I say, um, anti wrinkle injections. You can say Botox. It's fine. Um, Botox. Oh <laughs> yeah. wow, that feels that feels yeah. nice. <laughs> um, who uh, who are the first people you think of? And that still that crown still hasn't been taken by anyone. Um, we we have that at a nationwide level in Australia, but I think I think that do, that's still quite dynamic, and nobody has clearly come across as the as the number one winner. Yeah, interesting. Now, tell us about what you did do after school then, because you didn't follow a traditional path. You didn't, I guess, get a, a traditional qualification. So I, I, I remember it clearly. I took one day off. Um, I went, I went for some nice uh, for a nice meal with a couple of friends of mine after finishing the HSE, and my dad was running a chain of. Um, of chocolate cafes that he'd set up. Um, it's it's amazing what you do when you have too much money and too much time on your hands. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, he wasn't actively managing them. He wasn't running them and they were losing a lot of money. So as a kind of experiment, he said, well, Kian, I want you to go out and I want you to manage them. And, you know, me at 18 thinking I knew everything about business and everything about the world, I, I thought, oh, this is going to be a walk in the park. You know, I'm going to become a millionaire overnight and, you know, my life's going to be set. Um, and I quickly found out it was the complete opposite. Um, the cafe Cafes when I came in were losing quite a bit of money each week. Um, they were outdated. The product wasn't nice. The brand hadn't been developed, and it really wasn't a nice place to be. So, I kind of sat down with uh, my business partner at the time, who's my cousin, and we said, "Well, what can we do to make this place beautiful? What can we do to make it a nice place to be? How do we stop the loss? And how do we make this a, a, a hospitality venue which we would be able to roll out across the country?" So we had a big vision from the start and the things that we worked on were very, very basic. We worked on making sure that the um, the environment was a nicer place to be. We worked on developing a product menu, which was completely centered around gelato and chocolate, which were the two uh, main parts of the business. So we changed the name from Cloud9 Chocolate Cafe to C9 Chocolate and Gelato. Um, then the other basic things we did as well was just making sure customer service was was adequate. Like how many times have you guys walked into a, into a your favorite cafe and then you haven't gotten the right service and it kind of just doesn't sit right with you. Mm. So we were just all about repeat patronage and doing whatever we could to to materially increase um, the profitability of the firm. And eventually um, after about two or three years there, I managed to actually sell out of it, which was quite fantastic. And it was a profitable venture um, for myself, my dad, and um, my ex-business partner who now owns the uh, the cafes. Right. Okay. And then private equity. Well, we'll talk about your experiences there, but maybe just for people that are sitting and listening to this right now going, what the hell is private equity? Because it's, it's, a, it's a term that a lot of people speak about. You read about it in the paper. You might hear about it on, on the TV. But what does it actually mean? Yeah, so um, private equity is essentially um, when you go out to 
a bunch of rich people and you'll say, all right, well, let's go to 10 people and ask them each for a million dollars. Then you'll have $10 million and you'll invest that $10 million across a few different business assets. So you may invest in two or three different uh, businesses. And over the next three to five years, you will look to generate a return of at least three times your money. Now, an example of this may be the Foundry Group, which specializes in um, wellness and beauty-related um, business business investments. So a couple of their their um, of their investments are Mecca Cosmetica and um, and Swiss Vitamins, which I'm sure most of our uh, Australasian friends would know about. Um, in America uh, and Canada, you have groups like the Carlyle Group, um, which is owned by David Rubenstein, and that's a, a billion-dollar fund. And they'll be looking for massive ventures. So they'll they'll come across to say Inside Aesthetics, and they'll say, okay, well, you boys, we think your business as your podcast is worth $10 million, um, we'll, give you, we'll give you $5 million to own 50% of that. And over the next three to five years, we will look to grow that and then sell it at a profit. We valued it at 20, didn't we, today, <laughs> over a coffee? <laughs> uh, I, I can't find my wallet either. <laughs> it doesn't seem to go on missing. <laughs> so how does... So they come in, they, they look at a range of investments and or businesses, and I guess if they've got a $10 million fund, they might try and split their risk across different industries, Absolutely. different businesses, so that you know they're minimizing their risk profile. But how do they get them, how do they return their money? So you said they want to try and get three times their money. And I guess just to give people an idea about why we're discussing this, the, the aesthetics industry in Australia, at least, is dominated now by chain clinics. Those chain clinics, I think almost all of them either owned by private equity yes. or they are publicly listed. And we'll explain the difference in a minute. I guess that's just a sort of people wondering why we're discussing it is just to give them an understanding of how the industry works and what private equity means and how it's influencing, I guess, mm. the way the industry is moving. Without, I mean, you're, you'd be listening to this thinking, what the hell are you guys talking No, talk? no, no. I, I did a bit of reading before uh, we had <laughs> yeah. Kian on. But no, you're right. I mean, it, it's not something that doctors, nurses and your average medical professional would really role in that world yeah. we certainly wouldn't well, it's funny that you guys mentioned it because private equity is not something which goes back hundreds of years like many other things in finance mm. like you know lending money um or mortgages so to speak private equity in australia at least is a relatively new industry so it's only really been around since the 90s what they'll essentially do is they'll say after raising that that 10 million dollars from the, from those 10 different investors they will look to invest that so let's use the example of laser clinics australia for example mm -hmm. so um, that was bought out by archer capital in 2014 and they required 50 percent of the business mm -hmm. so um let's just pretend that they paid 50 million dollars for 50 percent of the business so mm -hmm. that means the whole enterprise is valued at 100 million dollars mm -hmm. so what they will look to do is to grow the business materially over time by looking at its, um, at its value drivers. Now, in a laser clinic, what those value drivers are, number, the number of clinics, number of rooms, the utilization of those rooms, um, the split between, between the revenue um, within the clinic, so between laser hair removal, cosmetic injectables, skin, body sculpting, skin care, and whatever else may be, be there, and they will look to materially grow that. So at the time Archer Capital acquired my dad's clinics, for example, I believe they only had 20 clinics. By the time Archer sold in 2017, I believe they had between 70 and 80 clinics. So they'd increased the number of clinics by three to four times, but um, the, the sellout was significantly more than that, mm. um, it, which was just a fantastic thing. They ended up selling for $650 million. Now, um, 
businesses are usually sold on a multiple of their earnings. So what that means is they will say, all right, um, your business, Laser Clinics Australia, is producing $10 million of profit. Now, based on an array of factors such as the split between the revenue, the defensibility of the revenue, the um, the likelihood of good economics being attached to its growth in the future, um, the scalability of this and the, um, the IP behind the business, uh, they will value it at a multiple. So if you're making $10 million, they would say, all right, maybe we'll give you a multiple of three. Maybe we'll give you a multiple of four, five, and they and the multiples can get crazy. Some people even get revenue multiples. Now that tends to happen in software businesses and recurring revenue-based businesses. Inside the wellness space, things tend to be based off EBITDA, which stands for earnings before interest, taxation, depreciation, amortization. So if, if somebody were looking to sell their clinic, it would be very important for them to have a, a, a steady stream of growth in their EBITDA over, over, over a period of time if they were looking to sell. And in terms of how these businesses come in, so say Archer Capital, they came in, they purchased or acquired 50% of the shares of the business. So what sort of things are they looking to do? I mean, I know from my perspective, I was involved in the business at that point in time, I saw some of the changes come through, but what are the, I guess the easy wins for them or what are they looking to do when they come into a business to automatically start working towards getting that return on their money? Yeah, well, what most people need to understand within, um, within um, you know, non-financial based um, industries is that people who are working in private equity have a playbook and they're very good at tidying up a business in a way that makes it look saleable, um, increases its um, its revenue and its profit, and creates value for all of its shareholders and stakeholders. Now, that's not always the case, and there are instances where private equity loses its money, but over the long term, it tends to be a very good investment. Um, what private equity will do is they will look at your business from the top down and what they will do is they'll say, all right, well, what are all the value drivers within the business? What are the things that that make this go from making $200,000 a year to making it make $300,000 a year? What are the three or four things that we need to change? So a, a business which picks up waste, for example, using trucks will say, all right, well, we will need more trucks. We'll need more places to dump dump the waste. We're going to need more drivers to drive the trucks. We're going to have to increase the amount of money that we charge to dump to dump the waste as um to to pick up the waste as well. In a in a laser clinic, for example, that would be all right. How many rooms are inside a clinic? How do we increase the number of rooms? How do we increase the utilization of those rooms? How do we increase the average basket sale? So that may be skincare. And if we own the whole skincare line as well our margins increase quite a bit. So that's why you see lots of people making their own skincare range right now with it uh, when they own clinics because they've realized, well, hey, if I capture the whole margin, I'll make more money. Mm. So what private equity will will be very good at is installing management teams, making systems and processes um, in, installed. So it's very, very easy for a buyer to look at the business and say, it's not reliant on its founders. Um, we've kind of got an economic moat, which is, you know, a, the defensibility of the business where most people can't attack you, so to speak. Um, and it's it's generating these insane returns that we wouldn't otherwise be able to get inside the stock market or buying a house or a farm. So it's just an alternative an asset class, which diversifies your, your earnings. And in, in the research phase where the private equity uh, team, if you like, are looking at businesses, is that where they might engage management consultants to absolutely you know, look at a business? Absolutely. Um, well, in the acquisition of Adore Beauty um, by Quadrant Private Equity, which happened, um, it happened about two years ago. And um, for our international list, um, listeners, they recently listed on the stock exchange. Adore Beauty is a probably the largest 
e-commerce platform for skincare and um, aesthetic related devices in Australia. Um, what what a private equity firm will do is they will look at all, an array of industries. So you may have industries such as clothing, waste, aesthetics, um, electronics, so to speak, and they will say, all right, based on the on the returns inside each of those industries, what is the most attractive? So if they look at if they look at aesthetics, they'll say, okay, well, it's a growing market. More people are spending money on their on their faces, on their bodies. They want to look good. They want to feel good. Um, it's not something you can outsource to China. You know, you, no one's going to um, to China to do their Botox. Um, so it, it's a lot more it's a lot more attractive place to be over the long term, over the next three to five years, where they're trying to generate their return. And then they'll say, all right, within the aesthetics market, where do we operate? Do we want to have a clinic? Do we want to sell to the clinics? Do we want to produce our own Botox? Do we want to produce our own skincare? All right, well, who's generating the most amount of return? Now, if you're a distributor, for example, the the value of your business is, all right, who's in your customer base? How often are they buying? What kinds of skincare ranges do, um, do you own? And you know, what does your contract look like with your suppliers? So it's not as valuable because you're not really able to grow that as much. You know, you can sell to you can sell to more clinics, for example. You can get a few more ranges, or you know, you can start selling machinery. However, it's not as valuable as a clinic where you can kind of say, well, okay, let's set up a clinic for maybe half a million dollars and open forty or fifty of them across the country, and then materially uh, the earnings will change because you'll start attracting all these different kinds of customers. And over time, you can grow it in a completely different way. So it's really about getting a top-down view and saying, well, where do we want to be? Hmm. I guess the, looking at it in a, in a different way, especially in this industry where people who have businesses or clinics, whether it be doctors or nurses, potentially know a lot about their, medic, their profession. So in terms of how to do treatments, customer service, but in terms of making a business saleable or working out where all the risks are in the business, so it might be processes, um, looking at things like in terms of like financial modelling, looking at ways they can increase efficiencies. And that's something that not a lot of people are trained in. You might have someone that's great at what they do, but in terms of setting their business up, so as you said, that's defensible, it's got, you know, they've mitigated as much risk as possible. They've looked at things financially, worked out where they can make more money, where they can save money. So those, I guess, are the things that private equity, when they come into a business, yeah, well, offer. you know, injectors and um, and clinic owners and distributors, so to speak, are very good at what they do. And there's a reason why they're making so much money. They understand the market, they understand the customers, um, and they understand the product. Now, that is something that private equity does not have a very good track record with. Um, however, when, it, when they work with founders, um, that's when you start getting these crazy returns because you have people who understand the um, all the boring stuff around financials, around growing a business materially over um, over time in a very short in a very short space of time. Uh, um, sorry, um, who are able to install management teams, who are able to install processes and procedures. All the boring things are done by private equity, and that's just not it's not something that most people within any industry um, have a skill set to do. And that's really where they're able to add their value because it makes it something complete. It's a completely different skill set that takes years and years and years to be trained on. To do something like that is the difference between selling a business at maybe three times its earning versus possibly 10 times its earnings. Now, if some if your business is making a million dollars in profit and you get three, three times, you make $3 million, which is good money. But if you can get $10 million 
Well, that's, that's just a completely different class entirely. So it's very important that you listen to people who are able to bring a different skill set to the table because they're able to change the business in a way where it becomes saleable. It becomes more attractive for a buyer. And tidying all those things up is just something that most people do not have the skill set to do. Yeah. Well, I think as well, the, generally the person that's their entrepreneur who's got the passion, have built the business from their life experiences, there's emotion involved. They're generally not great at all of the tasks that you were talking about just then in terms of processes. Yeah. And there's an emotional connection there as well, right? When you, oh, when you grow yeah. a business from scratch, it's your baby. Mm. A lot of the decisions that you make are probably emotional to a certain degree. Absolutely. So when you have someone come in that's completely removed emotionally from the business is just looking at it from a facts perspective, figures, processes can, I guess, look at it from a completely different perspective. And that's where you said the magic happens is when you've got the people that have got the X factor in terms yes. of creating the brand, the experience, the product, the offering. And you join that with someone who's financially very savvy that understands systems and processes and works in more of a mechanical, mathematical way. That's when the, that's when you start to get that that magic happening is, is the combination of those two forces. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to walk your, um, to walk you guys through, you know, what happened with laser clinics, Australia, for example, my dad started that in around 2008 he had one clinic and then he was able to grow it up to about 20. Now he, he installed franchisees there who owned 50% of the business and he would retain the other 50% of the business. So he was generating return from the clinics, which was quite nice. However, um, what he wasn't able to do was to take it to the next level. So he was earning dividends and building his capital value, but he wasn't able to realize his capital value. So to give you an analogy, it would be like buying a house and only getting rental income without being able to actually sell the house. Even though it may have gone up in value, who's going to buy it? That's the value that private equity um, are able to bring to the table. They help you realize an exit strategy. So after they'd actually bought in at um, buying 50% of his stake where my dad would have 25% of a clinic and then private equity would have the other 25% and then the franchisees would own 50%, they were able to tweak it in a way that my dad just simply did not have the skill set to do. And to be honest, most people don't have the skill set um, to do it. And it's not a bad thing. It's just it's just a matter of different, different skill sets. As you said before, you know, medical professionals are extraordinarily good at what they do. However, running a business from the top down is just, it's a completely different skill set that requires different education, different training, and um, and different people around you. And when you've got a playbook of a guy who's done something, you know, hundreds of times over, you'd rather listen to him than, you know, than into your own instincts. And being very pragmatic in that respect, like you mentioned before, Dave, is just, it's really hard because you have that emotional connection to, to the business. Yeah. However, realizing an exit strategy is what what separates people from being able to earn dividends from their business to actually being able to realize capital value. And that's the real mover mm. between somebody who uh, earns a very nice living to being able to cash out of a business for you yeah. know, $650 million. I was just checking the episode number when your dad was on because uh, if people want to know the backstory to the actual yeah. business, how it all started, what, what it did, it was episode 45 with um, Bob Moyney and Alistair Champion. Yeah. Um, in terms of um, an example of that, so I mean, I guess you, no better example could would be than looking at, say, like the average plastic surgeon's clinic here in Australia, where you have Dr. Doctor X, who's got this amazing practice, he's making millions of dollars a year, but it comes to retirement and he has nothing to sell because all of the goodwill, all of the money that's being generated is being done with their hands, whether him or her. Um, and then they've got 
an asset that they can't really sell. They almost have to give it away because there's been Absolutely. the business has no value without them. Would that, I mean, would that be an example? Or is yeah, that- well, l- taking a step back from that, let's look at what a plastic surgeon does. In essence, they perform um, they perform surgeries which um, on maybe the breast, the face, other areas of the body. The value of that is is their hands and the result that they are able to bring. Now each. Each surgeon um, provides a different result to the other, just like a cosmetic injector is able to. And that is what will attract um, a certain customer to come to them rather than anybody else. Now, if if your surgery name is Dr. X Plastic Surgery, well, it means that people are coming to you for the results you get and your name. Now, if the person who is providing the result and the person whose name is not actually within the clinic, the business has no value. Mm. The, on, the only value of the business is its, is its assets and kind of the existing goodwill of the location because a plastic surgeon is not going to want their name up in light if they're not the person who's doing the surgeries because then they're taking all the risk of tarnishing their name even after they retire. So it's very hard for them to realize the value. So the way that some plastic surgeons that I know of are trying to de-risk themselves is by actually removing their name from their business. So they'll just say, um, you know, inside aesthetics, plastic surgery, for example. Uh, I just gave you a nice little business idea. <laughs> then I think, uh, yeah. They're looking at each other. Um, um, and that that's the exact same with a cosmetic injector as well, where if you're the only person who's doing all the work, the value of your business is essentially nothing because mm. you are the person who's performing everything. So separating yourself from the business, although it's quite an emotional thing to do, is sometimes the best thing you can do from a financial perspective. Yeah, right. Well, I guess, you know, there's always this, uh, like an element of ego involved in this. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way because everyone's guilty of it. But when you've created something, you're you're creating the work. It's your name. You want it to be up in lights. You want to be known. Absolutely. But, but in some in some ways, what you're saying is that could be a self-sabotaging. It, it is. And looking at a business over time when you are selling it on a multiple, um, doing all these little things is what makes you go from, say, a three to maybe a five or a six or seven or eight or even beyond that. But there, it's, not, it's not a tick box where it's like, hey, they've got a management team, give them an extra multiple. Hey, they've got systems and IP in place, give them an extra two points so they'll go from three to five. Um, um, you know, they've got this product and their name isn't involved in the business. We'll give them an extra half multiple. It's it's not exactly a, a checkbox. It, it's sense checked by a lot of people working within the firm. And for that to happen, um, for, for a transaction to actually happen, there is months and months and months of due diligence which needs to take place. Now, that process is essentially an audit or an investigation into the business. So what will typically happen is they, a seller will issue a sales document saying, all right, well, I'm selling 20 laser hair removal clinics. This is how the revenue is made. This is why we win work. This is the, this is the difference between our firms and other firms. Um, these are the margins across the different businesses. These are the people involved. This is the story behind the business. This is the IP that we hold. And then um, the person who's looking at buying it will essentially go through the documents and confirm, okay, what they've said here is true. What they've said there is true. They'll ask additional questions, which may have not have come up in the sales documents. They will go through Excel sheets after Excel sheets, contract after contract to make sure that when they do acquire the business, they're taking on as little risk as possible. And there are no surprises because it's very important because once the founder has exited the business, you're on your own. It's smooth sailing for yourself um, to the extent that you've 
you've managed the risk um, within the due diligence process. Now, there are warranties and indemnities um, involved that, you know, if something materially changes in the business, like a, a tax bill from 2008, for example, you may still be liable for. But in essence, um, it's very, very important that you've set up um, your clinics or your practices in a way where a new founder can walk in, look around and say, all right, I know what I'm doing. Everything's set up. It's very easy for me to walk in there. That's the difference between a well-run, well-set-up business and you know, somebody injecting in a random alleyway. It's interesting because you know I'm, I'm the, the solo injector here and you guys are the businessmen. And you know, you're seeing things from a very scalable chain clinic if you like perspective mm-hmm. that the goal is sell a business for more than you started it for whereas your average doctor whether it's plastic surgeon or injector definitely isn't thinking like that they're thinking exactly what you said i've got my hands i went to medical school i learned how to do this that's what i enjoy doing yes i can train a colleague or a nurse or or, or a junior injector or whatever but most people aren't thinking about building 10, 15, 20 clinics. Yeah. But they don't have to though. I mean, there's different, it's not like you're in or you're out. There's different scales in terms of how that would work. So for example, if you use the example of what you're discussing, you're working in a clinic with a plastic surgeon. Now this plastic surgeon has been very clever because he's now built an injectable brand that's associated with his Medispa that he's not actually having to do any of the work on. Yeah, like Paul Masifa we had on. Exactly. So, I mean, you don't have to take it to, you know, the level of wanting to sell 30 or 50 clinics or multiples of 20, yeah. you can you can do things to say, well, this is my clinic. I'm actually going to look at what other services I can bring into this business that I don't actually have to do anything for. Yeah. Um, and that way, if they, like you say, for example, the guy that you're working with, the doctor you're working with, if he went to sell his business, just because he sells his business doesn't mean you're going anywhere. And all mm-hmm. those clients that come in every three, four months for injectables and whatever else, they're still going to be there. Yeah. So inherent, so logically thinking about it, his business is going to be worth more than Dr. Y over here who doesn't done, hasn't done any of that. Yes. So it doesn't have to be on that grand scale. But I'm, I'm trying to think of this, I'm trying to think of a question, but the, the scenario is, and you own your own clinics, mm. when you lose an injector, yes. whoever it is, yep. you notice an impact to your business because yep. people come for that person. Correct. Mm. So... But the, 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 there are some core things that people come to your clinic for, but there are certain things that people come for the person, not the course. What, what is interesting about the aesthetics market that um, doesn't really happen in many other markets is people are addicted to the service provider. They are obsessed with the certain result that that service provider is able to provide, and it's not easily replicable. Yeah. Um, Jake, I know you're a very skilled injector. You've been doing it for a long time. Um, however, there is a there is a limit as to what you're able to do based on you know making sure you're compliant. Um, um, you know, making sure you're comfortable and the patient is comfortable. Um, you know, if I, if I was going to get injectables with anyone, I'd be very comfortable going with you. Um, oh, thanks, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, there is a there is a limit, and when a patient you're limited by your time. Yeah, exactly right. And when a patient sees um, wants to see a certain doc, uh, doctor or nurse and they want that certain result, they're happy to pay more. They're happy to drive 20, 30 kilometers to get that result. So. The challenge for for, um, for medical professionals is to say, well, what can I do to separate myself from the business? I'm still happy to be involved, but how can I maybe move my way out of um, move my um, move my name out of the light? How can I attract other injectors inside this business to maybe capitalize on their time rather than only their own? Yeah. What can I do to actually grow this business so it doesn't actually need me? And that's the difference between 
making dividends and actually growing your capital value, which is the most important lesson for anybody to take away I mean, on this podcast. The logical thing from what you just said would then to be to, you know, train a team or whatever. Obviously everyone's got their own, you know, uh, taste and flair and way of doing things, but you'd have a core way of doing, let's say Botox, for example. Absolutely. But then the danger is almost that person takes your secret sauce and goes and sets up next door. That's always the risk, isn't it? Yeah, well, there's always a risk, um, especially inside this industry. You used a good example of, you know, David before. If he were to lose an injector, what would happen to his business? Um, it does materially change. But you have to look at, you have to have a view of which of something which is longer than three or four months. In Business goes on for so long. I like to look five, 10, 20 years into the future and I say, people are living better now within the aesthetics market than they were living five or even 10 10 years ago. And I, I'm very bullish that there's going to happen into the, into the future. Mm. More people are getting um, getting these treatments. They're getting it at a younger age. They're getting it at an older age. They're getting it more frequently. They're spending more money on it. Of course, you're going to have a couple of bad months. Of course, you're going to have a couple of bad years. But when you think about the potential of the business, you think about the potential of the industry, yeah. it's a fantastic place to be in. And by incentivizing people correctly and trying to get them to stay, uh, that's where most of the returns are going to be able to be made over the next five or 10 years because yeah. there is a lot of risk being tied um, inside uh, to um, to the actual service providers. But working with them in a way where, you know, everybody is doing quite well is is probably the most important way for, um, mm. for them to maximize, uh, for a business owner to maximize their return. Yeah. I mean, you can never mitigate risk altogether, but you could do things like, you know, the people that work within your team after a certain period of time, maybe they get a profit share of the business. Yeah. Maybe there's an option for them to buy in at some stage down the track. Maybe you have three or four injectors and you know that if one of them leave, they, they, you know, there's going to be a percentage of clients that follow them. Okay, fine. That's just the cost of doing business, but it's still better than you being the only person yeah. and all the risk is with you. So it's, I guess it's just about taking steps to minimize the risk and to do everything you can to shore up your business, keep your good people on board and ensure that everyone is succeeding into the future. And I think that's where a lot of business people go wrong is that they look at this pie that they've baked and because they've built, baked the pie, they've bought all the ingredients, they want all of it for themselves, yeah. mm. right? And it's not, it's not uncommon. It's, it's, it's a thing that, you know, a lot of people go through, especially when there's such an emotional connection to what you've created. But if you were to say, look, I'm going to give away half of this pie, but by doing so, the original pie is now three times bigger. Yeah. And now I'm actually making more, even though I've got lesser share. So it's just about looking at things from a different perspective. It's like a paradigm shift. And, and this is where you guys definitely do come in with a business because as the doctor again, I can't understand that. I'm too emotionally involved in my patients and what I do and my skill and, and so on and so on. But David knows that he can find a thousand injectors if he wanted to. So, you know, doctors and injectors feeling like they're special and they're the only one that can do thing. That's crap. <laughs> so I guess you see the bigger picture, whereas us solo injectors or doctors probably think, well, no one can replace me, but that's not probably true. Well, well nobody can replace you, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. But um, if, if, if you have if you have a clinic and you have say four people working for you, where, you know two of them may be nurses, two of them may be dermal therapists, and one of them um, and one one of them calls in sick, 
you know, you're losing, you're losing a large chunk of your revenue because somebody's not able to provide that service. So tying up your risk with it with a small number of people is not always a good idea. Mm. And looking to diversify by having, you know, um, casual staff on hand is very important as well. Maybe paying paying them more to incentivize them to stay. Doing whatever you can to work with your people rather than thinking, all right, what what are they doing because they're working for me yeah. is the attitude that I like to take. Because e- even though my mindset's corporate and I'm wearing a suit, you know, my pa- um, uh, uh, sorry, even though my structure is corporate, um, you know, my mindset's def- definitely partnership. So it's it's very important to look at the people around you and say, well, they've helped me build this as well. And David, you're 100 right. They've helped build the pie out. So even though you may own a little bit less of the pie, um, you, you're definitely walking away with more money and more more sustainable money as well. Because the very important thing is how likely is the cash flow um, go, going to going to remain the same or increase in the future. Now, if you lose staff members over time who are service providers that have that have this large customer base, well and they leave the business well that's going to materially change your earnings and if that changes your earnings you'll need to you'll need to adjust how how much how much money you need to spend on a day-to-day basis your clinic will actually be worth less money if you do plan on selling it as well so doing whatever you can to work with your service providers rather than thinking well what can i do to keep them here um that will force them to stay rather is is very very important yeah and i think that's where a lot of business people probably in some ways lose what the most important thing is, which is building those relationships, making it so that people actually want to stay rather than contractually trying to enforce it, understanding what drives people, what their goals are and working together. And then I I guess recognizing where your strengths are as a business owner, as an injector, where you lack skills and then Mm. surrounding yourself with people who complement that so that together as a team, you've got everything covered off. Well, I think, um, you know, when you, you and I were speaking um, earlier in the week, you mentioned that, you know, for example, with injectors, um, you know, they're finding that the treatment, the treatment scope they're doing is quite narrow. Um, you know, there's a lack of compliance with some service providers in the market um, that they're unable to have a lot of career progression. So I always like to think about what the next step may be for them. So mm-hmm. making sure, making sure that you've looked, you know, three, four, five years ahead into the future and said, well, what can I actually do to maximize the value from my customer base? That's very, very important because if you're only focusing on how much money you're going to pull out of the business over the next 12 months or the next two years, that's the wrong way to be looking at it. Focusing on how much equity you're actually building up, that's the difference. That's that's what's actually going to make you um, walk away with a lot of money versus actually just, you know, yeah. pulling out a small, small bit of cash every year. Yeah. And then I guess looking at your most valuable commodity, which is time. Mm. And I think that Mm. a lot of people don't realize that, you know, you can make, I mean, people might say money is like a most important commodity. You can make money, you can lose money, you can lose money and make money again, but you can't make more time. Absolutely. So like if you're doing things- Botox isn't that good yet. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So I mean, if if you're doing things that actually free up your time to actually focus on your business, focus on growing it, focus on giving time to your people, you know, all those things- you know, important factors to consider when you're, you know, looking to plan or structure your business. Like I'm very lucky that I got to do what I love in an industry that, that I understand with people I like every, every, um, every day of the week. Um, but for any reason that, you know, if I want to go to the beach or, you know, I want to hang out with my family, having other people around you to support you and do the treatments um, when when you don't have the time to do it, that's really, really important. And you raise such a good point there. Having people who work with you 
um, when you're not able to work, when you may be sick, when you want to go on a holiday, for example. And that's very important. Now, when you're the only person who owns a practice, it's quite difficult. And I'm definitely not faulting people who own own their own practice. I have a lot of respect for them. But asking yourself what you can do to diversify your your revenue, uh, what you can do to bring other service providers um, Mm. other service providers in to attract them to stay that's very very important because when you diversify your revenue and you're looking to grow and expand it will help you when a sale event comes because you're not reliant on one on one service um, on one income stream this is a rich dad poor dad (laughs) (laughs) yeah you read the book yeah it's exactly right uh, it's one of my favorite books actually is that Kiyosaki yeah Yeah. Kiyosaki Yeah. yeah well I mean Jake you just went on holidays for a week to Byron I mean you didn't earn any money while you were away that's not technically true but um, yeah yeah, you're right I'm I'm, I'm the main revenue earner with my hands and yes I'm away so correct I'm sure there was a few Botox emergencies up in Byron Bay (laughs) (laughs) no definitely not I was was definitely off he was too uh, drunk (laughs) (laughs) your point is right if I'm not there I'm not earning money and and, but if I had for example a clinic with another injector who I trained I could do that and I'd still be making some revenue Yeah. yeah exactly right and it's it's all about having that that foresight to say well what do i want to do in 5 or 10 years from now i, I can't forecast what's going to happen in 2025 or yeah. 2030 i do know this I, I know people will be making more money i know australia will, will still be an attractive place to live and i know people will be spending money on aesthetics i don't know where exactly they were spending uh, they will be spending it i don't know who they will be spending it with but understanding that aesthetics is the place to be is a very attractive thing for both me and for private equity mm. so um, when it when it comes to actually setting up a business, there's a lot of considerations that people will have to have around making sure you've trademarked your name, having the right domains set up, having making sure policies and procedures are in place so that when a new person does come on board, it's relatively easy to onboard them. And as you mentioned before, Jake and David, you know, when I do go on holidays, who's going to take over? How's that going to be managed? How do I keep them honest? Those are all very important things to consider. Setting up a business is, you know, while it sounds fun and, you know, it's exciting, it can be really, really hard. And I'm sure both of you guys have been in the situation where you've worked 60, 70, 80, maybe even more, 90, 100 hours a week. And it, it's not it's not easy. There's lots of things to do. There's a lot of competition. But if you've got the heart and you've got the temperament and you love what you do, uh, it should almost be like a game. It should almost be like a game. And I see that with a lot of injectors which makes this place such an, a fantastic area to work with. Mm. Well, I guess that sort of... Well, I did want to ask you a question about IPO and, and private trade sales. So Absolutely. maybe we'll come back to that in a sec. But I guess this leads nicely into, I guess, what's happening in the industry at the moment. So we've actually seen... Well, I think we're in the midst of a, a bit of a mini evolution in the industry where you've got a lot of nurse injectors now that have got the ability with a lot of ease to go and set up their own private practices, which is seems to be happening a lot at the moment. So you've got um, the guys from Fresh Clinics who we had on the podcast um, last year. Was it the year before? Gosh. No, last year. Last year. Um, talking about their service, which is providing almost ad hoc, like an Uber type scripting service. Yep. Um, I don't mean that to diminish them. Uber's a great product, but I just, if you want to sort of get an understanding about how easy it is, you pick up your phone, you log onto the app, you get a doctor within a certain number of rings, all the compliance is taken care of, et cetera. So it's allowed these It's an nurses, end-to-end B2B yeah. service for, for nurse injectors. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, the, the rise, uh, and I'll say this as well, I know the Fresh Clinics guys, they, they've done a fantastic job on setting up their systems and uh, attracting new nurses. And uh, I think they've done a really, really good service for the market. What, the, what it's actually helped them do, I guess we'll take a step back. 
chain clinics um, in Australia, at least, have commoditized these treatments to the extent where people have accepted that these can be done in shopping malls. They can be done on high streets. You know, they're not as discreet as they used to be Mm -hmm. um, five or 10 years ago. Jake, I don't know how they happen in the UK. It's Um, it's changing because LCA, sorry, LCUK is now uh, in the UK. I've never heard that one, LCUK. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, LCUK. So uh, LCA have sort of branched abroad. They've got clinics in New Zealand, UK, and I believe they're branching out further. I don't know. Yeah. But... um, Yes, it's become more palatable to the UK market, but certainly it's still quite new, whereas here it's very normal. Mm. And to me, it was a bit weird when I came here. I was like, what? Why would I go to the shopping market and buy like groceries and then get my Botox? It was weird. But actually, it's super convenient and there's nothing weird about it. It's just a different mind. It's a mind shift. Absolutely. Which is kind of weird because you could just walk into a garage and get injected by a house cleaner with, <laughs> yeah. with, with fillers in the UK. But you think high street yeah. clinics are weird. Well, but, but it's, I guess, the concept of discretion yeah. and hidden and private, yeah. whether it's dodgy or a fantastic private clinic. Yeah. Yeah, well, rightfully or wrongfully, this is just the state of the market. And, you know, these these are the rules that we're, we're now bound by, at least in Australia. So um, it, it, it's, def, it's definitely different. But what it's actually allowed nurses to do is to see this insane volume of patients that they regularly wouldn't have seen, you know, going back 10 years ago. And it's just allowed them to build up fantastic databases. It's given them a lot of, a lot of nurses a fantastic life. They've earned a lot more money than, you know, what may have been promised 10 years ago or even 20 years ago for um, older injectors. And I, I just think it's fantastic. But what's actually changed materially is nurses have realized, well, hang on, um, if somebody owns a clinic and I'm working for them, I can actually just set up my own clinic because the value of me is my hands, the result I get and my name. Hmm. Why don't I set up my own clinic? I'll capture the full margin so I can earn some profits from the business. I'll get a commission from when I perform the injectables and I may have a couple of other injectors working underneath me. And more control. Exactly right. Exactly right. So they can they can monitor compliance a lot better. And working with guys like Fresh, you know, they're able to get products a lot cheaper. Uh, I hope they're going to pay me for the sponsorship. <laughs> <laughs> um, they can get products a lot cheaper. They can get um, a script um, done in a couple of rings like you mentioned before, David. Mm. And um and sensible advice when you need it. Yeah, sense from doctors, from yeah. medical profession, yeah. medical professionals. It's the most important thing. Um, and just like you would listen to a guy in private equity when you have financial advice, you should listen to doctors when you have a medical question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it sounds rather sound when you say it out loud, but you'd be surprised how yeah. many how many people just will well, ignore it. Everyone's got a degree, a medical degree from Google these days. Yeah. So what do you need doctors for? <laughs> I'm I'm, um, I'm interested to see how this is all going to play out in the next sort of two to three years is a lot of these people who want to go out and start their own businesses think it's a great idea. You know, the guys that Fresh have made it really easy. But I'm interested to see how they're going to fare in the long term because I think that there may be an element of not really appreciating how difficult it is to have your own business. Um, And with all these people doing the same thing, there's, I mean, the market's growing, right? There's no doubt the market's growing, but is it growing at the rate that it can sustain all these people who are now going out onto their own and starting their own businesses, can it? And do they have the skills to differentiate themselves, to build a sound business, to set processes in place and to have time to expand and shore up 
all of their risks? I don't know the answer to that question, but it's going to be interesting to see. I can offer some insight. Now, I can't speak for the rest of the world, but at least in Australia, um, there, there's a um, there's a nice little um, company uh, called, it's not little at all, it's called Ibis. And what Ibis does is each year they release a report um, within a certain market and sometimes um, based on certain markets. They released a report, um, not just for cosmetic injectables, but for the aesthetics market as a whole. And employment is growing at about 2.1% a year while establishments are growing at about 2.3% per year over the next five years. So establishments are growing quicker than employment. That tells me that there's going to be a shortage of either nurses or aestheticians or plastic surgeons um, compared to demand. Now, we've been lucky enough in Australia to when compared to other countries, avoid coronavirus. You know, we're obviously quite an affluent country. Um, we earn a lot of money here in Australia in terms of um, GDP per capita. So people have all this extra income to spend. And they've just, plastic surgeons that I know of, and Jake, I'm sure you've experienced this yourself, you would have just seen a massive uptick in your in your customers come June 2020. It went and, bananas. Yeah, I'm sure it's still going bananas. You're a fantastic injector. Uh, <laughs> and David, I imagine your clinics even got busier yeah. after coronavirus. Of course, yeah. Now, some people may say that's bringing forward demand but I almost believe that this is to an extent sustainable because once you have these treatments once, you just become addicted to them. That, like I certainly, I certainly look forward to getting my talks and my filler done on a regular basis. Yeah. It's, By the way, just for everyone wondering how old Kiani is, 20, 23? 23. Wow. I, don't, I will be yeah. turning 24 very soon. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> just reach puberty basically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've had a beard since I was about 10 years old. Well, we won't go into that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, uh, Thank God for laser hair removal. I used yeah. to only have one eyebrow. <laughs> yeah, that's like, well, I think your dad started the business originally just for his own hair, hair body hair problem, wasn't it? He did actually. He did. He was. Uh, he he got he 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 got laser hair removal back in the late nineties, and he wrote. The, he wrote down the name of the machine on a scripting pad. While most people would have looked at the scripting pad, <laughs> uh, David just showed me a uh, uh, his phone. My dad's calling him now. <laughs> well, dial him his into ears the chat. are burning. His ears are burning. <laughs> um, I actually could add him into the chat. It'd be hilarious. Uh, you'll, you'll have to. You have to excuse me. Then. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah. So employment is growing faster than establishments. Oh, so establishments are growing faster than employment. So that tells me over the next few years, um, the the market's going to change where people are going to be seeking um, seeking nurses, doctors, aestheticians, plastic surgeons alike. Um, in higher demand. Now, as we know, there, there are a smaller number of injectors who do, the, for, the, for the largest point, um, more, more treatments than others, mm. and they will be a lot harder to attract. So what, what business owners will need to think of in a different perspective is, well, what can I do to attract these people? Do I need to bring new treatments on board? Do I never need to give more more pieces of the pie away? Do I need to offer more flexibility? Do I need to offer more opportunity? And I don't have the answer to that, but um, these are these questions that we need to consider as a whole. Now, the second part of your question as to you know what happens next and how it happens, well, it's 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 just interesting to crystal ball it, and I don't think anybody really knows, but it's it's just backing. Australia's aesthetics market and saying, well, I know people will be spending more money. I know they'll be getting it more often. And I know that they'll be getting it younger and older. So what can I do to capture that? And what can I do to reward the people around me? So those clinics that are growing, are they growing rurally 
uh, or, or city centres? What's well, the breakdown? Something like Silk Laser Clinics, for example, um, which just listed on the stock exchange back in December, uh, they is st- they still aren't in Victoria, you know, the mm. second largest state in Australia. Um, so th- while there is a lot of growth rurally, um, m- most of the growth that I see is still happening inside the capital cities. And while there, are, uh, while a lot of the chains are still rather established, like Laser Clinics Australia, for example, there's a lot of meat on the bone um, internationally. There's a lot of meat on the bone for new treatments and um, and new products that just haven't really caught traction yet. I know body sculpting is probably one of the fastest growing areas of the market. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, 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 not something I would have expected at all. You know, the way the trend was going, I, I almost thought laser hair removal was going to last forever. But looking back on it, after you've after you've gotten laser hair removal not 10, 20 times, it, no, for me, I had to get a, quite a bit more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, after you've gotten it 10 or 20 times, you've kind of exhausted that revenue. So clinics need to be very smart in, in the way they look to, towards the future and say, well, what can I do to make people keep coming back over and over and over again? When you have repeat customers, when people are staying with you for a long long period of time, they're not churning, they're spending more money with you, so their basket's growing, that is when a business becomes more valuable. Mm-hmm. And churning means uh, losing customers and they're yes. not returning. Yeah. 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 So something I wanted to ask you, and you sort of briefly alluded to it a few minutes ago, was trade, sale, private, uh, sorry, listed on the stock exchange. What's the difference between an IPO, so like selling a business privately, and then a public trade sale? What What is that difference and how so, does it work? Well, I'll start off with the similarities. So what is happening there is you are still selling a business. In essence, most people need to think about a, a public sale on IPO, which stands for initial public offering, um, to this in the same respect as I think of a private sale um, to a private equity firm or to an individual or a family office. So a public offering kind of works in this way. Um, a investment bank will make a document where they will say, all right, we are selling a business for $100 million and we're going to sell 50% of the shares. So that means the, uh, the while the business is valued $100 million, there's $50 million up for grabs. Now, there may be 100 million shares, so that means each share is worth $1. So 50, 50 million shares at $50 million is up for grabs. Now, individuals, institutions, uh, institutional banks. Uh, People on Reddit? Yeah. Pe- <laughs> <laughs> Too soon? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, superannuation funds, yeah. 401ks um, in America. Um, <laughs> yeah. Reddit users, absolutely. Yeah. They can, anybody's able to buy these, um, these shares, also known as stocks or securities. Um, the difference within a private sale is it's usually just the one fund, the private equity firm that will come to you and give you the $50 million. So while both of them are exit events, um, they're just done in a different way. Now, securities, um, public shares are a lot different to private markets because in private markets, you'll buy a business, you'll hold it, and you know, you'll look to sell it in three to five years. Securities have this advantage where you're able to sell them and buy them as freely as you want whenever you want. And that's when you see stock market crashes happening. That's when you see short squeezes happening like GameStop, yep. which you alluded to earlier with the Reddit users. Um, so most people view public um, sales as a lot more risky, but that's not the correct way to look at it. Um, even though somebody's offering you a price to buy or sell your shares at, you're under no obligation at any time to sell them. So with an example, um, a, a very simple example would be Coca-Cola. 
So if the shares, uh, if the business was worth $1 billion and there was a billion shares and each share was worth a dollar, there'd be a billion shares. Now, if you own 10 shares at $10 and then the stock crashes by 10%, so the company is now worth 900 million, the market will value your shares less. So people won't look at what the stock actually produces. They will look at what it's valued at. And sometimes they'll panic and they'll sell it because it suddenly dropped. Now, Jake, if you own a house that's worth a billion dollars and it drops by 10% and I knock on your door and I say, I'll give you 900 million, you don't freak out and sell it. So it doesn't really make sense that people do it with stocks as well. So people need to think of stocks on the public market in the exact way they think of owning a private business. Nothing has materially changed that has made the business drop by 10% overnight. You don't need to panic. You don't need to sell. You can hold it. You can be comfortable in understanding and what it produces and you can sell it whenever you want because sometimes you'll get a really good price sometimes you'll get a really bad price. Yeah. And just a disclaimer for Kian, this is not, um, should be not taken as uh, financial advice. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, this Absolutely is just not. information of a, in a general nature. And if anyone wants to talk about what they should do with buying and selling houses and stocks, they should go and talk to their own financial planner. Absolutely. Just saved your lawsuit, Kian. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> is it time for part two of the yes, podcast? Yes, let's do it. Yeah. Jake's like, let's stop talking about business now. Let's talk. Yeah, let's talk about something that I know about. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, it does actually follow on quite nicely what we were saying about maybe nurses branching out, um, wanting their own type of controller of their business and what they do. So you've recently started a startup business called Cosmetic Con Recruitment. That's right. What's the focus of it and and just tell us a bit about that? Yep. So um, in essence, like I alluded to before, um, establishments are growing faster than employment. And what's happened in Australia recently is there's been a big crunch for people trying to seek high quality injectors, um, but unfortunately there's a massive shortage of them. There are ads on um, job job websites such as Seek and Gumtree where people are looking for nurses. Yeah. I know of people paying um, small bonuses to nurses for signing up. I know of them doing whatever they can to try to attract um, yeah. better nurses. And LinkedIn spam. Don't forget LinkedIn spam. LinkedIn That's the best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I probably check Facebook more than I check LinkedIn. So. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So everyone's checking you out. Let's see. Do you want to know who they are? Give us money. Yeah. That's the best. Actually, I had Jake uh, checking my profile the other day. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah. He was. I was trying to do your bio. Yeah. For this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Meet Kian. He's done lots of great things. Yeah. Um, I'd realized that establishments were growing faster than um, than employment and that um, the, the squeeze for good injectors was happening. I talked to clinic owners and they'd say, well, I've lost an injector. I'm going to be losing all this money now because I've got all these clients lined up or injectors call in sick and you know, clinics will lose, you know, thousands of dollars of revenue in a day. And I said, well, what can I do to kind of solve that problem? So I'd sat down and thought about um, doing doing some some kind of business within the space. And I looked around and there wasn't really anything which just suited the nurse niche. You know, there were a couple, you know, that did, that just focused on um, dermal aestheticians and and stuff like that, but nobody really focused on nurses. So cosmetic recruitment is really simple. Just like Uber Eats, we're able to supply nurses um, to clinics in a short period of time. And the way we work is you'll call us up, you'll say, hey, a, um, a nurse is called in sick in you know the Sydney CBD. I need you to send a I need you to send a nurse out to do 10, 10 patients as tox and filler in these areas. Okay, great. So you give us a call. We go out to our database of nurses who want to work within the CBD, and we say we've got a job where we think you may be able to earn this amount of money today. 
who is available to do it. Then we look at all the candidates who have submitted their availabilities and then we say, okay, this person is suitable based on A, B and C. They've said they want to work with chain clinics. They want to be seeing this many customers per day. They want to be only injecting in these areas. They're only comfortable with these products, for example. And that's where we're able to add a lot of value because it allows the clinics to stop losing revenue on the day. It gives the nurses a job um, that they otherwise wouldn't have worked. And it means that um, the patient is still able to get their Botox and filler, most yeah. importantly. Well, I guess as well, not everyone wants to work full time. So you might have, say, for example, in the case of nurses, maybe this nurse has had some children, maybe they only want to work a couple of days a week, something like this, you know, might work for them quite well. They can just sort of work on an, on an ad hoc basis, um, which gives people flexibility. And I think that's generally what most people want these days is flexibility, being able to work the hours that they want to work not be fully committed. Yeah, well, how many times have you, you know, woken up one day and you said, well, I just can't be bothered today. I just <laughs> Every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's, there, there's plenty of, there are plenty of times where people just say, look, I just, I just can't be bothered. You know, I don't want to be working five, six, even seven days a week. I only want to work three days a week. I yeah. only want to work three kilometers away from where I live. Yeah. And these are the only treatments and products I want to work with. Fantastic. So that's a, that's a perfectly um, valid um, choice you've made. And as a nurse, we're giving, or as an injector rather, because we uh, we work with a couple of doctors as well, um, you, we provide people with that freedom, and that's all we're trying to do. We're trying to we're trying to liberate the market so um, injectors, doctors, and nurses alike are able to make yeah. better choices, earn more money, better flexibility, and work with whoever they want when they want. I mean, you've been in that position yeah. probably a hundred oh, times, David. More, you know, you'll get. I try to well, be sick to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, people get sick, they've got kids, um, they've got commitments outside of work. And I think that we are seeing that shift where people realize there's more to life than just working. People, I think these days want a better quality of life. So, you know, the 70, 70 to 80 hour work week, I think is becoming, I guess, for at least, at least a certain section of the market becoming a thing of the past. So by being able to give people that flexibility, I mean, you can't, rewrite the system right all you can do is do your best to work around it and see what what, what the, the demand is again like uber right not all uber drivers drive drive their cars seven days a week 24 hours a day they might only do it two days a week when they want to work they log in yeah and they get sent to a job now i'm not saying that nurses are uber drivers all i'm trying to do is draw the comparison between i guess the availability and the way it, it can work to suit people's lifestyles well also you know you might be in a circumstance i.e post pandemic for example yeah. where you might have you might need an extra income for a month and yeah. then you decide to work crazy for a month and then you can take your foot off the pedal. So you may be in Byron Bay on a holiday and you yes. just, you miss getting <laughs> behind your cannula. Exactly. So yeah. it, I think that, uh, that carrot of flexibility and control over what you're doing is actually really quite powerful. Well, we've also found it quite interesting because um, a couple of injectors have actually said, well, this has been a really good opportunity for me to see more patients. I'm mm -hmm. able to grow my brand. I'm able to grow my business. Mm -hmm. And this means when I do want to set up my own business and you um, injectors, when you're out there, feel free to give me a call. <laughs> um, I charge very low rates. <laughs> um uh, it, it means that they've got um, a diversified um, patient database from different areas. Um, yeah. they're, they're familiar with different products, different treatments, different concerns, working with people that they haven't ordinarily worked in, working in different environments. Yeah. It, it just it, it ticks all the boxes for a lot of injectors. It ticks all the boxes for the clinics and for the patients as well. They're still getting fantastic outcomes. Yeah. And I guess, you know, not encouraging people to leave their clinics, but if you were one of those injectors thinking, well, 
I'm not entirely sure I am happy here, but I don't want to commit to just setting up on my own. It's a kind of a nice halfway house to learn about the, the, the bigger landscape within injecting. Oh, absolutely. And um, the good thing is, you know, we fi- we're finding that there, there are some people working three, four days a week at a ch- in a chain clinic, for example, or a plastic surgeon or inside a nurse boutique. And they're saying, well, you know what? I really want to learn how to do threads, but, you know, I don't want to go through an entire course to do that. That seems quite expensive. I don't know if I can commit that to that in terms of time. Where is another place where I could learn that? So they'll call me and I'll say, well, look, we've got 10 clinics which are in your area. Um, we are able to place you in them on these days at these times if they should suit you. This is the amount of money that um, that we're prepared to pay you as well because it's all based on commission. Um, and it works out fantastically because the nurses actually learn more. So it means when they do go out and set up themselves, you know, they're not exposed to all this risk of, you know, injecting in a, in a high-risk area like the nose where they may be, maybe only done it three, four, five times each year. They've actually done it multiple times, whether they're on threads or they're on collagen stimulation, um, collagen stimulators. And it just works out fantastically for the nurses. Mm. Um, so you're saying that, you know, I guess there'd be opportunities for these nurses to learn and train on the job with, at various establishments that they go to. Is that what you mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. They're able to learn um, more treatments. They're able to see new patients. They're able to grow mm. their brand and their business and they're able to do it on their own time um, and make as much money as they really want. Hmm. Let's talk money. <laughs> How does it work? <laughs> Everyone's screaming, going, well, this sounds awesome, but nah. what, what's in it for me? <laughs> Jake's just getting his wallet out. I've got my own <laughs> machine over here. Um, so in, in essence, um, the way it works is um, we want to align the incentives of the patient. We want to align the incentives of the injector, the clinic, and um, cosmetic recruitment. So we kind of sat down and said, well, what was going to be the most fair outcome for everybody? So we offer um, all, all injectors a minimum of $400 per day um, and then or 25% gross commission. So if you earn, you know, $1,000 per day in billables, that means you would walk away with $250. Now, you would get the higher of the two, whether it is the minimum or the 25% commission. Um, my understanding and in my experience, most nurses are getting 25% of billables. There are, as, hasn't been many instances instances where they are only getting the minimum payment, but that just that pretty much means that a nurse or an injector knows how much money they're going to be getting per day as a bare minimum. So they're not committing to sitting inside a room on their phone, you know, waiting for, waiting for the clock to tick over. They're mm. actually committed to seeing patients and giving them a good outcome. Mm. And that's a minimum, obviously. Yeah, but, so it's based yeah. on a percentage of the total takings. Exactly right. Exactly right. 25%. And how do you qualify these nurses? Because I know as a business owner, I'd be thinking to myself, well, how do I know the person you're sending me is any good? How do you qualify them for their skill sets, you know, their safety record, how many patients they've seen? Those well, are questions I'd want to know the answers to. Yeah, well, it's it's really important that when working with any kind of medical professional, you take as you take as many steps as possible to mitigate risks, not only for yourself but also for the clinics um, that you'll be working with, and especially the patients you'll be injecting as well. So the first thing that we do is we make sure we go we go through a proper interview process with, with them, so we understand how many years they've been injecting, um, what areas of the face they're comfortable with injecting um, injecting with, understanding what kinds of products they have used before which ones they haven't used before um, and just know, knowing that you know some treatments are off limits for them we don't want we don't want nurses doing doing threads if they haven't done threads before we don't want them doing nose filler if they're not comfortable injecting nose filler now if that means the, that the clinic will lose one or two clients you know in a day with 15 of them in there we would rather have we would rather just work with the 13 of them so qualifying injectors is the most important thing for us and we only want to work with people who have that experience 
How are you, uh, yeah, because this is one of the quandaries in our industry of trying to work out how people were qualified and, and so on. Like, are you working with, say, doctors or do you have a, a bit of advisor to maybe look at the CVs of the nurses? Um, yeah, well, I run I run the CVs by, um, by a couple of people um, who have been inside the industry for a long period of time. Um, I, I make sure to kind of do a background check and all the, all the, uh, all the injectors as well, just because I've got enough connections within the market that I can pick up the phone and say, Hey, is this Dr. Sloan guy actually any good? Um, <laughs> Registered. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Obviously having a registration is just, it's, it's the absolute minimum. Um, and most of the, most of the clinics I'm placing them with, uh, the clinic owners are my friends. So, you know, I, I don't real I don't want to be giving them somebody who I think is going to do wrong by them yeah. because I, I feel like I'm doing wrong by them as well. So making sure everybody's registered, everybody's comfortable and everyone's getting a fantastic result is the only way that this business works and is viable. And how are you making money? How am I making money? He's <laughs> doing it for love. It's charity. Yeah. It's all the passion. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I'm not that, I'm not quite that quite trapped quite that charitable unfortunately <laughs> um, we, we, we take a very small fee on top on top of the, um, the the billable so the injector still walks away with 25% we just take 5% on top of that so the the clinic ends up with 70% of the revenue we end up with 30% of the revenue yeah. of that 30% 25 go to the injector we take 5% for ourselves yeah so we try to make sure it's a win 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 um, for everybody um, and that's the most important thing now there is also the fee that we'll take in case we place a nurse per permanently, um, which we call permanent placement. How convenient is that? Um, mm -hmm. Where we will take the whole fee for placing a nurse, but we will guarantee that nurse will stay there for a set period of time, depending on how long they, uh, how many days a week they work there, with their part-time, full-time, casual, they're, uh, based off their experience and a few other factors. Yeah. As a business owner, you know, things I might be worried about would be nurses stealing my database, um, losing clients how do you sort of mitigate that yeah well um as we mentioned before the the value of um of an injector is their hands and their name the result they bring now the reason that a client will be booking with your clinic in the first place is because they like the outcome that they're getting with your clinic so although a nurse is coming uh, coming in to fill in for the day and some clients may say look i really want to see dr sloan he's my favorite doctor in the world he's certainly mine by the way um <laughs> It's three it, times you've said that now. Uh, I, paid you I think you're starting to get worried. <laughs> <laughs> Draw um, swap seats. You can see next yeah. week. <laughs> um, there are strong points that we've made with all of our injectors to make sure that they're not soliciting clients. Uh, they're not going around um, the clinic's back and and stealing important data from them, including you know how much money they may be making from other services, um, yeah. stealing their stealing their um, their other um, employees, for example, um, manipulating the clinic. It's very very important we hedge ourselves. But the first thing that we do is we try to look for honesty and uh, with all of our people. We don't want we don't want these issues to come up as well. So we're very selective with the people we work with. We're, we, we are very comfortable to, to, to turn people away. I, I've turned away. Perfectly, um, perfectly decent injectors who know what who know what kind of outcome they're going to be getting, um, who otherwise would have just been dishonest people that I didn't want to work with. And you know, when I'm putting my name to um, to a business, you know, it's just not it's not the kind of reputation that I want to bring. Yeah, yeah. I got a question for David actually. Mm -hmm. Why or, or have you found it difficult to to attract and and retain injectors, or, or why do you think it is that they are jumping around clinics? Um, I think it's, I think part of it is this almost like a 
trying to think of the right word. It's almost like these, it's a newfound freedom because I think that there was only really two options for particularly nurse injectors before, which was to work in a doctor's surgery or clinic or a plastic surgeon or work for one of the chain clinics, right? So they were sort of not able to be independent because there was always this issue around how are they going to get scripts and product and all this sort of stuff, right? So I mm -hmm. think there was barriers put in place that kept these nurses within certain parameters. So I think what's happened now is you've almost seen like them being set free to a certain exact, to a certain extent where now because you've got fresh clinics, it gives them that independence and the medical support they need without having to be tied to a doctor or a, a chain clinic. Mm -hmm. You've just seen they've almost like they've been let out of jail to a mm -hmm. certain extent. So I think there's a lot of excitement and people feeling like they're independent. So I think that's probably what it, what it is. I think, you know, some of the chain clinics don't really understand what it takes to hold on to these injectors, what's going to make them want to stay, how do you make them feel part of the business, how do you take them on a career journey, all those types of things play into people going, you know what, I want to be in charge of my own career. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, the market will, will adjust accordingly. So, I mean, if the market doesn't adjust, if these clinics or business owners don't move with the times to actually understand what it is that it takes to keep people engaged and enthusiastic and loyal to your business, then they'll vote with their feet and they'll go and do their own thing. And I think, I think we're seeing that's what's happening is people are like, holy shit, we can't keep injectors anymore. It's like, well, yeah, you could have, should have been thinking about this two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, no shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, this is completely anecdotal. Like you do hear a lot of injectors sort of feel like they're dictated to yeah. by, by yeah. their particular brand or their clinic. Yeah. They're sort of told what to do, which is kind of weird because these people are normally non-medical. They don't yeah. really understand injectables, anatomy, mm -hmm. you know, general bedside manner, et cetera. And there's this sort of feeling like yeah. they're performing monkeys. Yeah. Also you'll get business people that own these, own these clinics and they don't, or even, I guess you could even have like, you know, I don't know how many, plastic surgeons really truly understand injectables, right? Maybe maybe some of them do, maybe some of them don't. But mm. if you've got a client that comes in complication or perceived complication as a business owner who doesn't understand the ins and outs and some of the technical side of what's being done, you might go, oh, just, you know, client needs a refund or clients, clients aren't always right. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, I think that it's also part but, of the problem is that I don't think think a lot of these nurses feel like they're just an adjunct or an accessory to the business. The Absolutely. donor doesn't really understand them. They don't understand what's actually technically going on. They probably don't feel supported in a lot of instances. So I think it's multifactorial. Yeah, I've definitely seen, not myself, but clinic owners anecdotally treating their business almost like a restaurant. Yeah. No. It's like, oh, the customer's <laughs> always right. And it's like, well, actually, yeah. no. Yeah. Often yeah. The I'm customer... going to go with the doctor on this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, th I think it's multifactorial. I think it's being controlled, probably not being respected enough, not having enough career progression um, and, you know. Narrow way, uh, array yeah. of treatments, um, not being integrated into a team, mm -hmm. you know, not being supported correctly, um, whether that's financially, psychologically, mm -hmm. uh, but all those things are very important to consider, you know, not even as an injector, but as a human being, you know, those are just things that you expect. Um, you know, those are the absolute basics. So that's where cosmetic recruitment really shines because we're able to offer nurses a different, a different avenue. So rather yep. than opening up your own clinic or rather than leaving your clinic entirely, like you said before, Jake, um, you know, we, we are very, we're very much so the island in the middle where we say, Hey, we'll help you take the jump or we'll help you set up or, yeah. you know, we'll place you in a clinic, um, short term. Now, um, 
One question I do want to ask you is, do you have different, I know you said they get paid 25% of the gross, but I mean, if you've got someone like Jake, for example, who's been injecting for over 10 years, can do all treatments, off-label, upper face, lower face, cannula, all products basically, are you going to pay him the same amount as a nurse that's been injecting for two years? Is there like a sliding scale or is that something you're still working well, on? Well, certainly the value um, Dr. Jake brings to the table is a lot higher than, you know, a nurse who's just graduated university after one month. And, yeah. you know, just to say, we don't work with any injectors who have less than one year of experience. Right, um, okay. But... The the way the way we've kind of pivoted the business in its early in its early stages are we look at Uber Eats again just because it's it's such a fantastic model it's actually the most valuable part of Uber, and we say well okay um, whether you go to Rockpool or whether you go to McDonald's um, they both get charged a thirty five percent commission um, for um, you know, Uber takes a thirty five percent commission, so we've we've kind of sat back and said well what can we do which is fair um, for for the injectors and the clinics and we figured all right well let's give the injectors more money than they'd ordinarily get for tendering from for a job by themselves but let's make sure that um, the clinics aren't overpaying either mm -hmm. um, so certainly why there are injectors to bring um, more value to the table um, we find that having a flat a mm -hmm. flat fee at this at this stage just creates expectations which are which are quite easy for both injectors and um, and clinics mm -hmm. you know in the future you know it'd be quite nice to have you know two two different pricing tiers, but mm -hmm. um, it's not something we've implemented yet. Okay. So yeah, I think that I sounds fair. And, you know, if you're that injector, you have the choice to not do it if it doesn't work just for don't you. Work. Yeah, just don't work. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. JobKeeper's still going on for another month. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how would nurses potentially reach out and get some more information about the this? The best thing to do is to jump onto cosmeticrecruitment.com.au. Um, just fill in the form there and then we'll be in contact within 24 hours. So, so how does the on boarding works so they fill out a form online fill out a form online then we uh, then we qualify them in an interview um, send out a welcome pack if we do decide to work with them uh, we obviously do our own diligence on the uh, on the injector as well and then um, in essence we can pretty much begin working with clinics almost immediately which is fantastic yeah and obviously if you're a clinic listening and and you want to sort of make use of the service as well I guess it's the same process it's it? the exact same process um, however with clinics we're, we're very stringent with which what kind of clinics we have on board. We want to make sure they're compliant. We want to make sure the owners are honest, and we want to make sure that the nurses are going to be placed in a clinic where um, where all the practices, policies, and procedures are fair, reasonable, and compliant. Yeah, I think that's really important. You don't want to be placing nurses in sort of back alleys and things like that. <laughs> no, 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 no. There will be none of that. <laughs> no um, one will be working for David. <laughs> <laughs> and what about um, scripts? Before we sort of let you go, who takes care of those? Is that like the clinic? If the clinic has scripts, yeah, a, well, a scripting service. Do you use well, that? Or? Well, we're lucky enough that a lot um, that a lot of clinics have um, set themselves up with some fantastic doctors who do scripts, um, and there are also nurses who have their own doctors who do scripts as well. Um, for all for all scripting, um, which which hasn't been uh, set out by other um, nurses um, by other injectors or the clinics, we're happy to step in and provide a scripting service for you. Okay, brilliant, and Thanks. product as well through that and service? product as well and product as well. Okay, excellent. That sounds um, like a pretty pretty great. Uh, well, everyone wins: clinic, patient, and injector. Exactly right. Exactly right. 
Um, good. And so cosmeticrecruitment.com.au? Yep. And um, social media? Um, cosmetic underscore recruitment on Instagram. Okay. And you can also find us on Facebook and you won't guess the name of this one, Cosmetic Recruitment. Okay. <laughs> no worries. Uh, who's behind the DMs? Who's going to answer the DMs? Um, I, I, I answer the DMs and there's also a small team that helps answer the DMs. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. It was good having a chat, um, talking about all things business, private equity, and then talking about your your latest venture. So interested to see how it goes into the future. I wish you um, all the best and lots of success. I'll try not to forget you guys when I'm rich. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kian. Speak to you soon. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.